welcome to another episode of MFA Writers. Today we have a wonderful conversation with Natalie Warther of Bennington College. Natalie reads an amazing flash fiction piece at the top of the show and then follows it up with lots of great insider info on Bennington's low-res program. This episode was requested by Philip Clapham. Philip, I hope you like it. And if you have a program you'd like to see featured, just let us know and we'll do our best to book a guest from that program. You can find MFA Writers on Instagram and Twitter, as well as MFAWriters.com. Feel free to shoot us a direct message on one of those platforms or an email at MFAWritersPodcast at gmail.com. We love to hear from listeners, and if you have a minute to rate or review the show, the best place to do that is on Apple Podcasts. Doing so will help boost our podcast as we try to boost these amazing writers. Finally, as always, thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome to MFA Writers, the podcast where we talk to creative writing MFA students about their program, their process, and a piece they're working on. I'm your host, Jared McCormick. Today, I'm with Natalie Werther. Natalie is a senior writer at 72 and Sunny and a recent MFA graduate from the Low Residency Program at Bennington College, where she was a dual major in poetry and fiction. She's a prose reader for Gasher Journal and was a recent finalist in the Smoke Long Grand Micro Contest. Her most recent fiction has appeared in Hobart After Dark, X-Ray, and Maudlin House. Today, Natalie is going to read her flash fiction piece titled Box, which recently received the Editor's Choice Award from New Flash Fiction Review. We emptied an old maker's box and put our parents inside. First Tam's, then mine. They shook their fists, but they were no bigger than salt and pepper shakers. So really, what could they do? Tension was high in the box. My father called his father a penny pincher. His mother called my mother's Afghans clownish. They argued about who'd gotten stuck with the bar bill at a rehearsal dinner, which was 17 years ago. We put the lid on and opened a bottle of Merlot. I lit cheap candles and heated a frozen pizza, which would have made both of our mothers roll over and die. It's so quiet, my husband said. We didn't even use plates. A few days in, the mothers still weren't talking to each other, but the fathers worked together to fashion a rope from their shirts and tiny belts. The idea was to scale the side of the box and crawl out of the handle hole, but we figured that was a stretch. The parents made reasonable requests, like, please, can we have full-fat creamer in the bottle cap today? And we obliged. We're not monsters. We love our parents very much. They just, you know. Life outside of the box was sweet. No more tiny feet soaking in the doubled egg tray. No more dentures in the shot glasses. No more looking for his father before I peed. He used to doze off in the sink and wake up shouting midstream. We put an ice cube in the box, and they took turns closing their eyes while one of them rubbed against it to get clean. His mother asked if I could make it warm, and I explained ice to her as patiently as I could. Still, they kept plotting escapes, despite how accommodating we'd been. His father, who had fewer hip surgeries than my father, got down on all fours, and they made a human pyramid with my mother at the top. I was wiping down counters with Clorox when I saw her tiny arm come out of the handle hole, followed by a tiny head. No, she yelled. You'll kill us all with those chemicals. She flung herself out of the hole and landed on the counter with a soft thud. Then, 
covering her mouth with her silk scarf, she ran like a hero towards the bottle and used all of her strength to push it into the sink. I picked her up, flicked on the burner, and dangled her over it, just until the soles of her shoes got hot. The smell of burning rubber lingered as a reminder of what happens when parents don't behave. After that, they stopped trying to escape, and we rewarded them. We doled out individual raisins as desserts, made a hot tub with an old tuna can and microwaved seltzer, and set up a miniature honky-tonk where they rode our stapler like a mechanical bull. We even planned a tropical vacation. All four of them hiked to the rain shower in the master bath and sunbathed on shoehorns in the yard. We missed our parents. We really did. But the parents we missed, the ones who'd done their best to shelter us from life's cruelty and made tea when we came home heartbroken or poor, those parents were gone long before the box. One night, I found my husband standing over the box, lid in his hand, watching them sleep. I peered in and looked down at my sleeping mother, propped up against the cardboard, smaller than the doll I'd had as a girl. I smoothed her hair back with my pinky and placed a raisin at her feet. On my dad's birthday, I rolled the smallest cigarette I could, lit it, and placed it in the box. They each took tiny puffs. My mother threw up in the corner. His mother got a head rush and immediately fell asleep. But our father sat there together, sucking on the butt and talking about the lives they'd lived. You should have seen that car turn heads. She sounds real special, Al. She was. She was a real special girl. Both men began to snore. The cigarette burned down, getting smaller and smaller, the way smallness comes for us all over time. Thank you so much for reading that. Thanks for being here. Yeah, of course. This is so fun. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. That story, I swear, <laughs> it just got me so good when I was reading it. I loved it. It really, it really moved me. It made me think about the way our parents kind of recede from our lives as we age and make our own lives, like how large and important they are when we're growing up and how they inevitably take on like that smaller and smaller role as we get mm -hmm. older. And then that last line, the cigarette burned down, getting smaller and smaller, the way smallness comes for us all over time. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I loved it. That was so good. So yeah, thank I want to know, I want to know how you came up with the idea for this story like what you started with and what your process usually looks like when you have an idea. Yeah. I mean, most of my ideas, this one included comes from just taking notes in my life, you know, like either a sentence on the TV or, you know, I think a lot of writers do this, but keeping a notebook or, you know, it's literally just the notes app in my phone where I'll write down little ideas of like, you know, what if, um, especially with speculative fiction, like, you know, what if no one could talk anymore? Or what if our parents were small and we and lived with us? And, you know, I think I, I had a funny thought or kind of like a honey, I shrunk the kids moment. Um, thinking about that, you know, that first sentence kind of came to me first of just, we put our parents in a box, and then what would happen from there? Um, and this one felt really good coming out. Like it was one of those ones where you just sit down and you get kind of most of it down. Um, the ending was really tricky, but I knew, you know, I knew what I wanted the piece to kind of be. Um, 
and the length felt really right to me. And so it did kind of just come out all in one burst. And then I was able to kind of go in and fine tune and find the tension and um, add in some tender moments without making it sentimental. So when you say you knew what the sto- you wanted the story to be, do you mean like you had an idea of what the theme was going to be or like you had an idea of just the shape, shape of the story in general? Yeah. I, I mean, I think I had the feeling, like I knew what the feeling was. I knew that it was like a plain telling of a sad thing, which is that we get old and our parents get old and we have to find new roles in each other's lives when we are adults and our parents are also adults. And then you said also that you felt really good about the length of the story. So what do you think makes Flash the best form through which to tell this story? Or in other words, what do you think would be gained or lost by telling this story in four or 5,000 words as opposed to 1,000? Yeah, I mean, I I tend to go right towards Flash or shorter just because I I think that my work could, and when it, before, you know, before I started to, get good at writing what I write, it could be overly sentimental. But the constraints of Flash really make you look at your writing and say, what could go? Like, what could we get rid of and still have um, the essence of something? Uh, There's, you know, a really nice analogy that I read uh, at one point when I first started getting into Flash, which was that um, a novel gives you the entire house a short story gives you a room and a piece of, a short short or a piece of flash um, gives you a keyhole to look through. And I just really love that. And I would rather with my own writing, I find that I would rather give my reader something to think about, you know, something that's not explained. Um, they don't know why the parents are miniature, you know, it's just, you get a few facts. Um, and I also think that, at least judging by the response I've gotten from readers is it allows you to insert yourself into the story more, you know? Um, So I think, I think box needed to be flash because it's such a universal feeling, you know, that sadness of the changing roles when your parents get older and you get older. And um, I wanted the reader to be able to insert themselves. I love that. I love that you really kind of started mostly with a feeling and that, it sounds like to me that one of your main goals in writing this or writing any flash fiction piece is to maintain that feeling without focusing on it too much, just keeping the Mm -hmm. essence of it under the surface. I love that idea. And it's also interesting that idea that if you let the story become too long and focus on that feeling too much, it could become too sentimental Yeah. And like, you know, it, it, I think this concept exists outside of the flash world. Like I'm going to, um, show myself as being an ex like emo indie girl, but (laughs) you know, I remember being obsessed with this one song that was so, um, so sad. It was by this like, you know, Ohio folk band and, it was just so sad and it cut off like right up, like it basically just dropped right after the first verse. And it like the way that it left you wanting more was like so visceral and I felt it so strongly. Like it just seemed like the most perfect choice that that artist could have made. And, um, you know, I think little, 
little things like that have always been really intriguing to me. The idea of leaving um, somebody wanting more. So what was your early reading and writing life like? Have you always been an avid reader and writer? Like at what point did you start reading and writing flash fiction? Yeah, I mean, um, I don't think I was a traditional reader and writer the way a lot of people in MFA programs were as a kid. I mean, I devoured Shel Silverstein, um, you know, all those childhood books. Like, I, I definitely read every night with my dad, but um, I wasn't like the high school English nerd. I loved to write. I loved to write. Like, I thought I wanted to write memoirs, and I was always keeping a journal. Um, and I, up until the, my MFA program, literally, I wrote poetry. Very, very, very bad, overly sentimental, cheesy, corny poems that I pray to God. There's like a tumbler out there somewhere that I just pray no one ever finds. Um, but honestly, I didn't really start writing Flash until my MFA. Or like actually right before my MFA, I took a creative writing class at the um, the community college in Santa Monica. And it was an amazing class. Uh, great professor. And, you know, you had to write a story every week. And I worked in advertising and my job was really, really demanding. And so I basically was just turning in short stories, one or two pages, because it was what I had the time to write. And there wasn't really a length um, requirement. And I was like, oh, I kind of love these. Like I, you know, these don't feel like the beginnings of stories. These feel like full stories to me. And that's kind of when I learned that Flash was even a genre. I didn't even know that was an option. So it, it sounds to me like in general, you were drawn more to the writing than you were to reading growing up. Totally. Why do you think that was? I think I was uh, a little bit. So I guess I was self-absorbed as a preteen, you know, like I thought the deck of, I thought the hand I'd been dealt was like, so, you know, worthy of, of like angsty writing, you know? <laughs> so I did a lot of self-reflection and journaling and being the girl on the bus with like her angsty journal. Um, <laughs> and I, you know, I don't think I was, I don't, I didn't come from a family of readers. So it, it never really seemed like, like books to me were like books on war that my dad, you know, and um, in high school, we read a few that caught my attention, like Great Gaps, you know, certain, all those classic Hemingway. Um, but I wasn't really introduced to books that one, interest me, interested me and two, were accessible. You know, it always felt really like hard to read. I was only reading, I was only really introduced to those books that feel like work to do, uh -huh. to get through. Um, so I think I kind of avoid, I mean, probably read like three books a year and just kind of avoided it. Yeah. I mean, well, I have like my background is in teaching. So I spent some time teaching high schoolers. Um, and one thing I would hear all the time is they would say like, they didn't feel like they had the time to read or that it wasn't accessible or that they didn't have the attention span for it. So what do you think flash fiction could offer to a new generation of readers? Well, this is like one thing I'm obsessed with because I just think it's like the unlock. I, you know, I think flash is short enough that it can retain a reader and, um, 
diverse enough that you could it can cover all different types of all different types of readers can find something in the flash genre. Uh, and it's also, you know, one thing I try to do is post my stories on Instagram because it's a format that can be read on a phone. And I don't think people are carrying books in their in their um, backpack on the on the bus anymore. You know, I think if we could get literature onto more phones, more young people might be open to reading. You know, you mentioned posting on Instagram. You do this thing called Flash Fridays on Instagram where you post um Flash fiction, I think it's once a month on Fridays on your Instagram account. So tell us about that. What, how did that start and why did you want to do that? Yeah, I mean, um, so I, you know, I've mentioned that I work in advertising and I actually, for my last semester of my MFA, took a sabbatical from work because um, I just really wanted to feel what it felt like to be a writer for six months and only be a writer amazing thing. I whole, I really recommend it to anybody who um, can afford and, and has the opportunity to do something like that. Um, but, you know, one thing that I, I wanted to do was find a way during that six month period to start getting my work out there um, to people who don't read Lit Max, you know, like there's probably 10% of readers uh, are actually reading the Lit Mags, you know, and I have a maybe a thousand followers who are already looking at my account and why would I not put my writing in front of them? So I have a few, I have maybe two other friends from my grad program who were doing things like this and they really inspired me and kind of kicked me in the butt to be brave and and put it out there. And honestly, it just kind of like came together. People were really nice and giving me recommendations of um, templates to use to design them and then I was writing for my program. I was still writing 20 pages of fiction a month. So I always had stories that were kind of ready. And I just started posting them. At that time, I was doing one a week, every Friday at 9 a.m. Um, fiction that can be read on your phone. And I would post them in stories. And I would try to make the font big and only put a certain amount of font, um, a certain amount of words on every slide so that it wasn't overwhelming. And I just begged people for feedback um, and tried to make them better every week and more engaging, easier to read. Um, you know, I really just tried to think of ways to make Instagram a platform for writers because right now it is not. And it feels like such a missed opportunity. You know, all other types of artists get to share their work on Instagram. And I think if we could figure out a way to make that platform a writer-friendly platform, we could get a lot more people reading our work. Okay, so we've talked about the benefits of reading Flash, but what do you think the benefits are for writers in going small, writing small pieces of prose? What are the benefits for new and emerging writers? Well, I think one thing is um, the benefit of finishing something in a single setting is really great for confidence. Um, I've found it's so much easier for me in the 30 minutes that I have before meetings uh, in the morning to sit down and get one flash fiction story out that I can then fine tune later. That feels so much better to me than getting the beginning of a long story out. Um, so I think that's one thing. And then I also just think that like, the muscle of getting a story out in one go 
helps you understand the arc of beginning, middle, end in a really like distinct way. You know, you almost start to get an intuition for like, okay, and now I should be coming towards the middle. Okay. And now I need like a banger of a last line. And then now I need to look back at the title and make sure that that snaps, you know? It was a big turning point for me as like a developing writer when I was first trying to do it. The moment that I stopped trying to write novels, yeah. I just started writing the shortest stories I could, yeah. starting and finishing things, starting and finishing. Yeah. I saw improvements so quickly in a way that I never did when I was trying to write long things. So I think it's great advice. And there are quite a few really good flash fiction publications out there, a few of which make appearances in your bio, like Smoke Long Quarterly and Hobart. But in general, do you think Flash gets the respect it deserves? No, no, not at <laughs> all. You know, I remember reading uh, early on, I think it was Randall Brown said when he first started writing Flash, his professor picked up his paper like it was like a wet rag and was like, this is not a story. <laughs> and it's so true, you know, like it kind of gets kicked to the corner of the literary genre and and I don't fully understand why, because there are people who technically have been writing Flash, like Kafka wrote super short, uh, Amy Hempel, uh, Lydia Davis. Like, there's just so many, Joy Williams, there's so many wonderful, well-respected writers who write short and don't necessarily call themselves Flash, probably because Flash has a bad connotation. Like, when I try to publish my book, I probably won't call it Flash. You have a slightly non-traditional career, at least in relation to the idea most people have of the writer's life. You mentioned that you work full-time, and it's not for a school or a literary magazine or in publishing or journalism, but it's in advertising. So I'm curious to hear you talk about that work, like how long you've been doing it and how you balance that with the uh, writing that you do. Yeah. Um, I am a copywriter in advertising. I make ads. Um, and I've been doing it for about eight years. And, you know, it is, um, I go back and forth. Sometimes I love it. Sometimes I feel like a slave to marketing. But um, for the most part, you know, I think I came to a crossroads while I was in the MFA where I said, okay, do I want to stay on this path of being in advertising or do I want to kind of switch to um, the literary world? You know, a lot of the careers that I'm seeing my peers um, pursue, like in teaching and academia. And I actually, I sat down, I think it was my second term teacher and really just talked to her, um, Jennifer Chang. She was wonderful. But she pointed out that, you know, she said something to me about lifestyle and how it wasn't, you know, that I didn't need to feel guilty for choosing a different lifestyle and that I was still a writer if I wasn't a teacher, which I think was important for me to hear just because I think I have more fun in advertising than I would have in academia. Um, and there's also just the reality of finances, you know, like this is a, uh, my copywriting job allows me to write every day and also pays me a, a healthy salary that I will never have to worry about. I'll always be secure financially. Um, and, you know, I, I think that there, unfortunately, is just the, the ladder in academia and the, the struggle of trying to become a professor or 
um, teach 10 different classes at the same time. It just takes, it just takes so much effort. And, um, I just wasn't sure that I had the passion for it that I would need to be able to be as good as at it as I am at ever in, um, at being a copywriter and advertising. So, um, I, you know, I have come to peace with my decision and I, I kind of try to talk to people about it as often as I can, just because I think more writers need permission to not pursue a job in academia if they don't, you know, necessarily want to do that. There's a lot of amazing writers who, um, are also good at other things and can also take different paths that lead them to a happier life, you know? Yeah, I think that makes total sense to me. Um, you know, there's this like really narrow idea of what writers are supposed to do. But if that narrow path puts you in a position where you are worried about money all the time and you don't have the mental bandwidth or the time to write, then what good is that to you as a writer? Yeah, yeah, totally. And I mean, there are definitely challenges. Like time is my biggest challenge. Um, the job can be really grueling, uh, you know, at its worst. You're working seven days a week, you know, like nine, eight to nine. Um, but at the same time, I think I I work well in in that type of pressure and constraint, you know, like I, I almost feel more diligent when I have less time. Um, so you just find ways to make it work. You know, like I, I'm not going to say that I wake up at 5 a.m. every day, but I try to at least sit down with a tea a couple of days a week before, you know, at 7 a.m. or 8 a.m. before my 9 a.m.s and just kind of start a few stories or work on first sentences or work on revising one piece. Um, it's much slower. It's, it's a much slower process than it was when I had six months off to just be writing but it does get done. And, um, you know, I have, I stayed with my company for long enough. Um, I think it was six or seven years at that point that they did let me take a six month break, um, to focus only on writing. And I was able to keep my health insurance and my computer. So, you know, there's benefits to doing something like that. Um, working a few years and then taking a little bit of time off rather than just, constantly waking up every day and struggling. <laughs> so what made you want to pursue the MFA? Well, so I never, I never studied writing in my undergrad. Um, I was a communications and art major and that was mostly just because I was afraid and my dad was very afraid that I would be poor and, you know, unpublished. And, um, and I really regretted that, you know, I always knew, I always loved writing, but I didn't feel formally trained in it. And I didn't know even the simplest things like what submittable was and how people get published. You know, I remember what, like before my MFA, I went to a public library class um, one Saturday morning and like learned about submittable. And I was like, this is amazing. Uh, and I didn't have any peers that I didn't have anyone in my life who was in the literary world. Um, so I didn't feel like a writer at all. I didn't feel I could not take myself seriously and I couldn't tell other people that I like to write. It just didn't feel true to me. Well, you ended up in the Bennington College MFA program, which is a two-year low residency program where 
According to the website, writers commit as much to reading as to writing and critical literary analysis. Students in the program can focus on fiction, nonfiction, or poetry, or they may work in a dual genre. A lot of people choose the low residency route so they can stay in their jobs. Was that the case for you? Yeah, totally. Um, I didn't want to leave my job. I didn't want to leave LA. You know, I had finally just after five or six years of living here felt like I um, was making relationships and, you know, had friendships that I, I wasn't ready to leave. Uh, and I wasn't ready to kind of do the writing full time, nor could I really afford to. Um, so low residency was, uh, was a perfect choice for me, kind of the only thing I was considering. Um, and I was really excited by the idea of going back to the East coast twice a year, just because I'm from, um, Philly and, you know, that was something that I could totally see myself building into my life and my travel schedule that I already kind of had of going back at Christmas and then going back once in the summer. So in the end, do you think it was the right choice? Yeah, a thousand percent. It was definitely right for me. It allowed me to stay in my job and keep getting better as a copywriter, you know, and staying in that lane um, and staying and building relationships in California. And at the same time, you know, in on in this on the side, I was becoming a much better writer. Well, one thing that seems really cool about this program is that according to the website, there is a one to one faculty to student ratio, which they say allows for true mentorship. In those times when you weren't on campus, did you feel like you still had access to the faculty and a sense of mentorship and direction in your writing? Yeah. Um, the system that they use is what they call packets. And every month you are sending a letter and 20 pages of your writing, um, which they then collect and read and then give notes on and then send back. Um, and that process worked really well for me. Um, you know, obviously professors vary in their style and there was a level of subjectivity to, um, the way the professors ran their their time away from campus. But for the most part, um, I mostly felt like I had people who, you know, I had professors who really invested in me and wanted to push me to become better. Um, any direct questions I had, you know, I mostly saved everything for that one letter. So it really was kind of you were only communicating twice or three times a month. Um, but they were always um, at the beginning of the month, you also set a reading list. So you were reading what they recommended and then writing annotations on, on um, that reading. And then, you know, the some of the most valuable information that I got back from them separate from their, their comments on my writing was the comments on my annotations and, and helping me change the way I think while reading um, being aware of, you know, different techniques and what's going on on the page and all that kind of stuff. What about the residencies? What did a typical one look like? Um, so typically, I, I think they were 10 days and um, they might have been a little bit longer than that, but somewhere around 10 days. And you show up and you um, everybody stayed on campus. You know, obviously some of this was during COVID, so they were virtual, but... Typically, you uh, show up on campus and you get your your assignment of what where you're going to be staying, and and most of the time your cohort, so your 
basically like the class that you entered the program with was kind of all in one house. Um, so you get your little room and, and, uh, you would go to the cafeteria for dinner and then every night there was a reading, a faculty reading. Um, so yeah, it was cool. And it's in this really cozy barn on this beautiful campus, you know, um, so it was a lot of, uh, choosing what you were going to attend because there's so many things. I mean, the days were completely packed from eight to nine, basically, um, so you would kind of just get your schedule and choose what you wanted to attend in terms of, um, there were guest speakers, the faculties would give lectures and classes and then workshop, which, um, was every other day for two hours. Uh, and everyone got workshopped once. So, you know, you had already read your classmates work and given notes on it. And then you would spend, um, an entire day talking about two people's writing. That sounds really fun. And I didn't realize, I guess, that in these low residency programs, when you go to a residency, that you're kind of choosing the events you want to attend. I guess I just assumed that like everyone was going to the same thing. It There's definitely like all of the nonfiction people will go to the nonfiction stuff. Um, and there are required ones, like the workshop is required, but workshop was the only thing that was required. So if you wanted to go to everything, like a lot of people did, you totally could. Um, you'd end up exhausted by the end of the day. But um, yeah, you know, like a lot of the times I would, if it was, you know, for example, nonfiction, which isn't my genre, I might go to the library and work on um, notes that somebody had given me on my piece or just go to the cafeteria and catch up with someone. Um, there's definitely a social component as well, you know, because you're coming in with a class of somewhere around 20 people um, and keeping in touch with them away from the residency as well. So did you feel like you got an opportunity to build that community that you were looking for when you applied to the program? Yeah. You know, I mean, I think, I think there were people who took more advantage of the social parts of it than I did. I would say, you know, I'm walking away with a few close friends for sure. And, and people that I can always um, call on to read my writing and stuff, but it really, I, the one thing I like about the low residency program is you can just make it what you want it to be. Um, and I was looking less for the social aspects than some other people. So, um, you know, when I went there for 10 days, I really was just trying to focus on writing and focus on reading and, um, you know, give it that undivided attention that I wasn't able to give it when I was home in L.A., and then we talked about that mentorship aspect of the program. When you were at the residency, did you get a chance to meet one-on-one with professors while you were there? Yeah. Um, everybody gets a one-on-one uh, with their professor for the next term to kind of talk about how the how it will go um, and and to go over your reading list. And then I was always catching up with my old professors. Um, while when you would come back to campus, you kind of you know, I would shoot them an email, do you want to grab a coffee or, you know, and that was always just really nice because you get to talk about how far you came that term and um, really just guidance. And another cool thing about the program is that there seems to be some flexibility in what genres you study while in the program. So you, for example, went the dual genre route and focused on both fiction and poetry. Can you tell us a bit about that decision? Yeah, I mean, Personally, I think I needed to do that to be able to put poetry aside. Um, 
you know, I had just never been formally trained in either. And I had been starting to write fiction, but still kind of had this like, I don't know, knock at the door from poetry that was like, are you sure? Are you sure we're not it? (laughs) Um, So I think I had to explore both. Quickly learned that, you know, I just don't have the instinct for poetry that I think being really good at it requires, um, you know, line breaks. And there's just so much, there's so much that goes into a good poem that I'm so thankful that I did the two terms in poetry because I feel like I can read poetry better and get more out of it. Um, But I find that when it comes to what I'm trying to communicate when writing, it comes out better uh, in a, in a flash fiction or even a prose poem, um, that's almost like a hybrid. So I'm really happy that I did both. And they actually allowed me the flexibility of, you know, I wasn't sure cause there's five terms in a dual major instead of four. And I wasn't sure if I wanted the last one to be poetry or fiction, you know, in, in saying it another way, I didn't know what I was going to major in and what I was going to minor in. And they allowed me to just do to do the two of poetry, two of fiction, and then kind of decide. So I ended up being a fiction major, which I knew I was going to do after that first term in fiction. Uh, but I was really grateful that they didn't kind of make me choose which one was going to be the more weighted one until the end. Okay, so this was one thing that I was going to ask you about. So you mentioned terms like most students would do four terms if you do a dual genre it's five terms I'm assuming a Mm -hmm. term is like a semester could you just uh, maybe talk a little bit more about like the differences between a student who focuses in one genre and a student who focuses in two genres the difference in like what they're required to take yeah um I mean honestly there aren't that many differences if you do the dual genre you do that extra term um which is the biggest thing because you don't graduate with the class that you came in with. Um, But, you know, other than that, it's just one more of what you've kind of already been doing. You're just with a different group of people because, you know, if you were studying nonfiction and now you're studying poetry, you're obviously with a different professor. And, um, but having been in both, they, they pretty much operate the same. You know, you're, you're still creating a reading list, reading 25 books a term, uh, writing 20 pages a month and uh, two annotations a month and sending that to your to your professor. So what do you think you learned about writing fiction and writing poetry from doing both of these genres in the MFA? In what ways do you think they are different and in what ways do you think they intersect? Well, I mean, the most valuable thing that I learned personally is that you don't have to pick one there are so many wonderful pieces of writing. Some of my favorite pieces that I've written that if I wanted to call them a poem, I could. And if I wanted to call them fiction, I could. That concept was just never introduced to me. You know, like I just believed that unless it was a lineated piece that's kind of felt scattered across the page, it wasn't a poem. And, you know, that lesson just opened up a whole new category of things that I could write and things that I wanted to write. Um, and read too. So I think that was the most valuable thing was just the uh, understanding that at the end, even though I studied both sides of it, and I needed to understand both sides, I really did end up writing something more in the middle of both. And so are you still writing poetry? I know you said you've at this point, like, you feel like you're a little bit more of a fiction writer than a poet, but are you still writing poetry? 
it's so cringy when I do. Um, (laughs) (laughs) You know, there's there's like definitely the beginnings of bad poems in my notes section that are like, maybe I'll just leave this here and one day it'll become (laughs) something. But, you know, like I I just there's something so, uh, yeah, cringy about the like you think of a metaphor and you're like, oh, it's genius. And then you read it a day later and you're like, oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think it's great that the program allowed you to kind of explore your interests. Coming in as a poet, not sure if you still wanted to do that, but not totally sold on fiction. Being able to do the dual genre, try both out. It's cool that you came in mostly writing poetry and you're leaving mostly writing fiction. Totally. And, you know, there are poems that I wrote in the program that I love, you know, like my thesis at the end had to be part poetry and part fiction. And then editing those poems after putting them aside for a couple of um, terms was really a beautiful experience because they, I think, are poignant and um, expressive and really do kind of go right at the wound of my own personal life, Um, you know, and and that is something that I'll always have. And I'm so glad that I fine-tuned those. But, um, you know, I, I think fiction just, you know, poetry, it feels like I almost can't write a poem about something that didn't happen to me. Whereas fiction feels like I can take things that happened to me or take feelings that I've had and put them into a fictional context. And that allows me to be separate from it and make it more interesting than my own life is, you know. So I'm curious about the other students in the program, because sometimes with MFA programs, they'll like certain programs will start to have a certain type of writer that they accept into the program. And I'm curious if that happens with Bennington, if there's like a Bennington type of writer that you see in the low res program there, or if there's like a diversity of styles. No, that's, that's a really interesting question. Um, I think because of the nature of the program being one that you can, um, that's so flexible to your, to a busy lifestyle, you end up getting a lot of parents, um, and people who have careers. Um, so, you know, that's slightly interesting in terms of like who we are outside of Bennington. Um, you know, a lot of moms who had their kids and then go back and realize that they really want to pursue writing, uh, a lot of people who work in careers that that um, they want to keep going and they can't necessarily stop. So that's the main thing that comes to mind in terms of writing styles. You know, I think there was an array of styles and I think um, an array of experience level too. You know, like I I always felt in my workshops like there were varying levels of um, hit you know expertise which was kind of fun because you got to learn from a lot of people and um, see a diverse range of, of where people were at in their writing journey. So students in the program start either in January or June, which is when the residencies occur. And so the deadlines to apply for the program are in September and March, respectively. Since students aren't on campus all year, you know, with these low risk programs, there tend to be less opportunities for things like funding. Uh, But Bennington does offer a few scholarships and fellowships, it seems. So how much do you know about funding opportunities at Bennington? Um, 
you know, maybe not as much as somebody in admissions, but um, I do know, I, I remember researching when I applied and I know they have a poetry um, scholarship and I do know a few people who did the fellowship, um, teaching fellowship. So I think it's something they're trying, the fellowship at least, and those types of opportunities. I think it's something they're trying to incorporate more and um encourage people to do more. But uh, yeah, I, I never personally took advantage of those things just because um, I couldn't move to Bennington for a term. So, you know, some of those things weren't available to me, but I do know their, um, their scholarships available. I'm curious about that teaching fellowship because most um, low res programs don't, because you're not on campus, they don't offer really many opportunities to get teaching experience. But Bennington has this residential teaching fellowship in which they um, bring students to campus each year to teach and live for one year and they get funded and they get teaching experience. So you said you knew a, pe- a few people who did that. How much can you tell us about that experience? Yeah, um, I I wish I could tell you more. I mean, I, I do know the two people who did it. Um, and I think that they would say it was a good experience. Um, my interpretation was it, it was still kind of something that was, um, the program was trying to figure out how it works. So there were a little bit of like um, pain points just in the fact that it's a relatively newish concept. I hope I'm right in that. Um, I'm sure I'm going to get an email that I'm completely <laughs> wrong. But um, yeah, as far as I understand, they uh, provide housing and, Um, you are teaching the undergraduate Bennington kids. So uh, it's a, it's a different type of system, but I think it works well for people who live in New York city or have, you know, uh, one person I know who did it, who was in my cohort had a partner in New York city could travel back on weekends and was just focused on getting teaching experience for that term. And what about other opportunities? Are there other things that are available to students that maybe, I'm missing that we haven't talked about. Yeah. I mean, um, I'm trying to think there's been, um, a couple of times they'll do like a speaker series in different cities. One time Mark, the program director came up to California and gave a kind of a mini lecture on Roca, which was super cool. Um, and I think they kind of do little tours around the country through during the off time, uh, where if you live in Austin and we're in Austin giving this um, guest lecture or uh, talk, then you can attend those. I know there was um, a reading in Brooklyn. I remember when I first uh, got admitted, I was really jealous that I couldn't go to this like Bennington reading night in Brooklyn. Uh, and there's definitely a Facebook community where, where people keep in touch. Um, my cohort talks on WhatsApp. So there's a lot of like meeting up at um, AWP or wherever you were, you know, giving people, you know, I heard about this contest. And um, so there definitely is a, a community that goes on even while you're away from campus. Cool. Yeah. I hadn't heard of that before. The idea of like professors going around doing like uh, speaking engagements at conferences. And then that's cool. As a low resident, yeah. that's a great opportunity to like, go and see your professors in person every now and then. Yeah. Yeah, totally. It was, um, 
I mean, it was really cool. There was, I guess, a, a Bennington alum who offered up her house and it was a beautiful house. And, you know, there were all the hors d'oeuvres that you could ever want. Um, and it was cool just to kind of see everybody outside of campus and in their normal lives. All the, you know, anybody who is Californian came in for it. Cool. Well, before we go, I want to give you the last word. And I want you to tell me one thing you think the program does really well. And one thing that you think Bennington could improve on? Hmm. I was afraid you might ask. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think one thing Bennington does really well is just allow for that flexibility in our lives. Um, I've never had a professor who had a problem with me uh, needing an extension on a deadline if work gets in the way. Um, I've always had, and I've never really heard of professors who aren't cool with that. You know, they are normal people with normal lives who also have things that come up. Um, so I think just the fact that, that I was able to keep my life going while also getting my master, you know, my MFA was, was something that I think only Bennington has really nailed. They've nailed allowing for flexibility um, in terms of one thing that I think that they could do better, I think with the nature of the program being partially online, um, communication is just inherently going to be, uh, a little tricky, especially when it comes to things like graduation requirements and deadlines and, you know, um, I guess mainly graduation requirements. It got it can get a little bit confusing when you're wrapping up and you've got to track your thesis, your reading, your live reading that you do. Um, you're also like meeting with the cohort beneath you to give them advice on their last term. Like there's just so much that goes on in your last um, term, your last time really at Bennington and you know, I don't have the answer. I don't know how they could get more organized, but I think probably all MFA programs could benefit from a little bit more organization. <laughs> yeah, I think that that's completely true. Well, this has been awesome. I'd love talking to you. I loved your yeah. story. And I think if you keep writing flash fiction like that, eventually it's going to blow up. So thank, thank you. you so much for coming on. Thanks for talking to me. Fingers crossed. Yeah. Thank you. This has been a blast and uh, we'll have to do it again. Yeah. Why not? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you so much. Thank you.